to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullick. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fullick. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to disaster recovery, business continuity, emergency management, COVID, resilience, anything that's relatable to those subjects. Speaking of which, if you'd like to be on the show or you'd like to talk about a, uh, a specific topic, please feel free. Go to my LinkedIn profile. Uh, I'm the only Alex Fullick there, so I'm very easy to find. Or you can just leave a comment uh, below the uh, in, in the comment section on YouTube. Or if you're just listening on Voice America, there is a button underneath the graphic on the show's homepage that says send the host an email, and I respond to everything. I'd like to thank everybody at Stone Road for uh, making sure we can make it here today. Uh, and their product, BoastAssessment.com helps you manage your business continuity programs at your own pace and focus your resources appropriately. Longtime listeners, especially on Voice America, you'll know that I talked about um, different speakers around the globe, that we've had all kinds of uh, people from different organizations. And today I'm joined by somebody down in Australia. And I'd like to welcome to the show, Officer, should I say Officer? I will stick with uni student for now. Okay. <laughs> uni student. <laughs> Russell Dippy. Russell, welcome to the show. And thank you. And thanks for having me. Now, uh, I, I just kind of mentioned we've got people around the globe listening and uh, now watching, you know, on YouTube. So could you take a minute or two and uh, tell us about yourself, what you do, and how you got into what you do? Okay. Um, so... My title is officer, I am a police officer, but I'm actually more of an emergency manager uh, within my agency with a statewide responsibility. For those around the world that know of St John Ambulance, I started there as a cadet as the age of 10 before I took that from being a St John cadet to joining the police agency um, and have continued my studies over a number of years across the emergency management, initially response spectrums, but then into the broader part of emergency management and at the moment I'm currently doing a professional doctorate with Charles Sturt University here in Australia uh, looking at emergency management and in particular the uh, human factors or the human capacities of an Australian emergency manager. Now recently, correct me if I'm wrong, you uh, are one of the first uh, individuals to receive the International Emergency Management Society uh, Qualification certification, TQC certification? Uh, not quite completed that one. I'm an International Association of Emergency Managers certified emergency manager, and I'm one of the test candidates for the TQC. I've just got the exam part to go, which hopefully will be done in the next week or so. Well, wonderful. I'm sure you'll, you'll pass. You know, uh, I, I, I know you'll, you'll, you'll be fine because I, I've seen articles and I've seen emails back and forth. Um, in the team's organization. So um, let me be the first to say congratulate you ahead of time. <laughs> and hopefully in a couple of weeks, I'll be able to say thank you very much. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm going to see a, a, an announcement from uh, team, the team's president, Harold, you know, or something on LinkedIn. So, you know, uh, well done uh, to you. And thank you for your service being in the police force too. Thank you. Now, uh, you mentioned you're in emergency management. So, um, in some of our communications back and forth and some of the things that I know you've written and put together, um, you've talked about emergency management and incident management. Can you clarify what both of those are and the difference between those two? Yes, um, I will go down that path. What we've had, I think, over a period of time is, I don't know if I'd necessarily say misuse of language, but the use of language that's become a little bit um, blasé in its accuracy at times. So 
if we go the other end, we go incident management. Everyone knows what it is to manage an incident. If you're in the US, you use the um, NIMS system. Australia plagiarised that many years ago and called it AIMS, but it's basically the same. It's all the management by objectives, et cetera, and it's about building up, managing something that happens from a little thing to a big thing and just keep adding more resources as it needs to and more skills. So an incident management scheme looks at very much the response to an emergency. An emergency management role and function looks at what Australia calls PPRR, the comprehensive approach, prevent, prepare, respond, recover. Other, other jurisdictions put mitigation in, some at the beginning of the um, line, some at the end of the line. At the end of the day, it's not actually a line, it's more of a circle. It just keeps happening over and over and hopefully we learn from what's happened in the past. So an emergency manager does as much around policy and preparation and exercising and writing plans as they do, I think, about responding to something that happens. And then more importantly, an emergency manager then has a role in recovery, getting the community back to where they were, and hopefully somewhere along there, learning from what has happened and trying to write themselves out of a job so it doesn't happen again. I don't know that any emergency manager is necessarily going to, in the current world, completely write themselves out of the job, but I think that's one of the lines in a proper emergency manager's job spec is to aim at getting rid of their job if they can, making it so that it's not needed. So incident management very much around the skills needed to respond, whether that be, and I'm not wanting to denigrate any particular agency, whether that be the paramedic or EMS person, if we're looking at a US type title, that rocks up to the sick person and does all their work in relation to the sick person, but doesn't do any preventative health type work as part of their normal business and that side of thing, or the firefighter that rocks up to the house fire, but doesn't necessarily have roles in relation to building code um, and how we actually make our houses more fire resistant, how we actually change our planning rules and our local governance to try and make sure we don't build in places that are suspect, uh, subject to those sorts of fires. Whereas the emergency manager is that broader aspect. And I admit, while I may in my organisation be considered a fairly um, senior, high level, pick whatever word you want, emergency manager, I'm not by far in any way the best incident manager for my organisation. My organisation has some very good incident managers that are a lot more experienced and so on at it. But by the same token, I'm the person that they look to for the emergency management expertise. So we have, in a lot of cases, identified there are those two discrete skill sets. One is not more important than the other. Each has their time in the sun, but we need to remember they both exist. What kind of, because you just brought it up, I'm going to ask the question, you know, skills, what kind of skills separate those two roles? So if we have a look at the AIMS manual, which is the um, Australian version of the American NIMS, very much the manual was about the incident controller. The incident controller was God. The IC did everything without necessarily recognising the IC worked in a bigger picture organisation, reported to an agency chief executive or a chief officer. That chief officer or chief executive had some sort of reporting arrangements to elected officials. Those elected officials then had some sort of um, relationship expectations from the community at which they serve. Everyone's within a bigger structure. My skills with, as the emergency manager are about understanding in a lot more detail that bigger structure, what else is around the place, what else is impacting upon it. As we call it in the latest version of the Australian AIMS manual, what's above the incident management team? So that's very much where I operate in the, the coordination, the above the incident management team, but trying to make sure that the incident controller is getting everything that she or he needs to do their job. So uh, I have to beg the question. We've got incident management, emergency management, 
what's disaster management then? Um, <clears throat> again, a, a use of language. In Australia, particularly, we have some states. So we've got the seven states in, around Australia, some that will use disaster, some that will use emergency. We haven't necessarily got the word consistent, but the, um, the what it's applying to is consistent. So in my state, the definition under law of emergency includes stubbing your toe on the desk and dropping a nuke on the state. It is that broad an incident is an emergency. Within the definition of emergency, we have some levels. What we found in our state previously, before we made those changes back in 2004, is if we called things an incident and then we had a set of arrangements around an incident, then we called things an emergency and we had a set of arrangements around that, then we called things a disaster and had a set of arrangements around that, all of our mistakes, issues, errors, opportunities for improvement, whatever you want to call them, occurred on when we transitioned those arrangements. Everything, just like you know, if you pick up a hard copy map book, everything's on the edge of the map page. All of our problems were on the edge of those arrangements between the different levels. So in our state and across a number of areas of Australia, we've tried to get rid of some of those artificial levels. We have some levels within the one picture, but the arrangements themselves are very broad to try and get rid of that issue of, are you here? Are you here? Um, we used to have a, um, a national safety organisation that categorised risk, for example, using numbers. And the, exam and the arguments were, was it a 3.5 or a 3.6? And at the end of the day, did it really matter? The risk was either minor, moderate or major, and it was as broad as that because nothing was that accurate in what we were doing. So that we're a little bit agnostic about the terms. Well, that, that reminds me in um, project management when they talk about risks or even uh, um, uh, when business continuity people are doing uh, business impact assessments. You know, they're trying to add a number to a risk, you know, one to five or one to ten or whatever the case may be. And, you, you know, sometimes it just well, it's either going to occur or it's not going to occur and the probability of that occurring is high or it's not. You know, giving a 3.5, you know, what's the difference between a four and a three? You know, <laughs> or does it even matter? You know, uh, it, it kind of muddies the water, you know, a little bit and, sometimes. And people get lost in arguing over the points of something because they're into a numbers framework mm -hmm. when at the end of the day, they're still just putting their best interpretation from their expertise on the topic to the picture. So unless you can get a ruler out and measure it, I don't think that numbers necessarily help the understanding and they don't necessarily make it any easier for the community that we're there to serve. We've got to actually get the message across to them, the people that we're here to actually look after in a way that they understand. And at times telling them it's a 3.6 or 3.7, especially when even if you're talking about earthquakes, people don't necessarily understand what's the difference between the different points if we look at Richter. But if you talk about modified Michaeli, where it's the plate rattled, the cupboard rattled, the wall fell off, the house fell down, that's something people can associate with. Well, I guess, too, so by adding numbers... Um it also depends on the uh, perception of and the experiences of the person themselves. Yep. You know, what they've Everything gone through, what they've noticed, what they've um, uh, had already happened to them, you know, in another workplace, you know, and then somebody else has had nothing, never experienced anything. So they think uh, an incident, an emergency, whatever is a lower, uh, you know, number, you know, the risk is a lower number while someone who has gone through it, you know, will say, oh, no, 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 I've gone through it. It's a higher number. So then you, you get completely opposite um, uh, designations from people. Yeah. And it comes down to confusion. Just looking at a building, is the level that you walk in from the street level zero or level one or level two, depending on how you want to put on the label, or is it just the ground level floor and the first floor above ground level? Yeah. So again, language. 
Yeah, <laughs> language is the you know the key to everything. You know, communications, and yet it can also be the thing that uh, messes us up. It's like a, yeah. a capstone in a uh, an archway. Without it, everything falls. And so it's key. You know. Well, on that note, we've come to the end of our first segment. Believe it or not, see, time flies here when we're chatting. <laughs> We're talking uh, right now about emergency management with Russell Dippy in Australia. And we are going to be right back. And we're going to start talking about some certifications and the profession. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Tax laws are constantly changing. How can you keep up? Tune in to the Tax Answers Advisor with host Marcelino Dodge. By working together year-round, we'll help you implement proactive tax strategies to ensure you are paying the least amount of tax possible and work to increase your business cash flow. We'll help you file your business and individual tax returns accurately, safely, and properly the first time. Listen every Thursday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back. We are talking with Russell Dippy about emergency management and uh, certification and uh, professional, bleh, professions <laughs> down in Australia. Russell, great first segment. Lots of uh, good information. Um, now I'd like to talk about the uh, profession of emergency management. And sometimes there's confusion over the uh, some of the verbiage that's used, uh, profession, professional, and professionalism. Can you explain and uh, define what those three actually are? Because they're not all the same thing, apparently. So one of the things I found with my research, again, funny enough, aligning with our first uh, part of the segment was about the use of language and terms that had come through. So profession, professionalism, professionalisation, doing a professional job, all have different uh, understandings across both the community and academia. We then add confusion or further confusion when we start talking about vocation. Some people talk about things as a vocation. Um, so I tried to, in the article that um, led to us having this discussion, was trying to tie some of that back and bring it back to a stepping stone. So if we look at the different levels, a lot of people will say a vocation is a level of career that normally has some sort of skills training, whereas a profession is a level of career or job that has a higher level of standing, a higher level of training or education that goes into that. Um, profession, professional tend to be used a little bit interchangeably. The medicine is a profession. A doctor is a professional that most people understand and has built up over a period of time. Professionalism tends to be a pathway of moving from those that have got a vacation to a profession. So I'll put it back into the older um, occupations around the place. Somebody maybe have an occupation as a garbo, a very important thing in keeping our streets clean, our communities safe from disease. 
Some might have an thank, thank you for clarifying that. I was just going to say, what's a garbo? Yeah, that's an Australian term. <laughs> and I was like, well, what is that? <laughs> a garbologist. <laughs> um, a rubbish bin man or lady, as the case may be. But, yes, an Australianism. So each one of them will do the job to the best of their abilities. The garbo will have a set of skills required. The doctor will have the set of skills required. One will do one set of training. One will do another set of training. There are a set of occupations that have the title of profession that people have recognised around the world for a long time. Doctors are one of them, nurses to a degree, lawyers, um, depending on where you are, depends on some of the others. In Australia, for example, paramedics have just had national registration go through and they are now well and truly on recognised as profession, a profession in their own right in Australia as compared to previously in an almost derogatory way being just referred to as ambulance drivers. So an ambulance officer in Australia now with national registration, professional university degree, education, protected title in the same way as doctors, they're now considered to be a profession. If we look at emergency management in Australia, it's still somewhere on that path. So there's a lot of people that are in the emergency management roles that have started off as emergency services officers or they've started off as defence personnel. They've broadened their skills from being just, just isn't the right word, from being a responder and started to move into the sorts of areas that I work in where it's very much around that emergency management, the prevent, prepare, respond and recover activities. So there's unfortunately not a huge number in Australia that have started going down that path. Um, the research, the uh, understanding of the word professional indicates that there needs to be some form of university or higher level education, some sort of ability to independently think. Um, there's normally a greater recognition of the skills of a profession versus and I don't like using the term lower level, but it gives people a picture of where it would appear on a, on a continuum, a vacation which some consider to be lower than um, a profession. By the same token, in Australia at the moment, a plumber who is considered to be a vocational qualification can often be earning more than an entry-level doctor, which is considered to be a profession. So there's some discussion about whether or not you should send your kids off to get a vocational education and do a trade or a professional education and become a doctor or a nurse because if it's about the dollars they get, sometimes the plumbers are getting more and we all need to have plumbers. So it's very much, again, an Australianism here, horses for courses, what is appropriate for the work that is being done. And from an emergency management point of view, going down this pathway towards professionalism, moving from what was initially delivered as vocational courses for our um, firefighters, our initial police officers, our state emergency service personnel. I don't know what the equivalent would be in uh, North America for SES. They're a um, general emergency assistance group outside of police EMS and fire. Um, moving down from the vocational skills they get in doing their skills towards the professional skills that come with a university level type skill set, thinking process, um, the ability to document thoughts, explain, etc., is that pathway to professionalism. And that's where the research and a lot of the uh, literature is starting to indicate that the certification is one of those ways of actually going down that path, which is what I was looking at in the um, paper that I wrote. So certification can be applied to particular skills or qualifications or experience, or as you mentioned earlier in the TQC that I'm one of the test candidates for, it's actually a combination of all of the above. If we look at some of the um, experience in North America, certification again is combinations of experience um, accreditations, which are a variation on the certification scheme. You know, I've accredited you to 
inject this or I've accredited you to build this wall or I've accredited you to go and do this topic. So certification is one of those uh, tools that can be used to actually help moving people down that path from what's normally considered to be a vocational, vocational level occupation into the professional type occupation. Well, one thing I, I found interesting, that I got a couple of questions. Uh, considering the recent uh, couple of years in Australia with all the fires, you know, and I, I, they've been absolutely devastating, you know, and uh, I've got family down in Australia as well. So sometimes I get a little nervous, uh, you know, when I see some of these fires or floods. Um, yep. You know, uh, in Lismore a couple of years ago, I have family there and uh, they, they've, you know, experienced floods. I'm surprised to hear that emergency management isn't considered a profession, considering there's so much evidence for the need for emergency managers. Um, I would agree with you on that one. The issue that we've struggled with is, I think, a, a factor of size. Um, my state, for example, is 1.2 million people. So to be able to afford for, as a government to set up and employ a fire agency, an SES agency, an ambulance agency, a police agency, and then say we're going to set up another agency or organisation to do emergency management as compared to, say, in my case, it's myself and six within a broader organisation of 5,000. So I don't have any of the overheads to my function around organisational management, budget, HR, and all those things that are absorbed into the the bigger picture organisation. I think over a period of time as population increases and the work and recognition of the individuals in these in specific areas increases, we will see a bit more of that professionalisation of emergency management in this country. New South Wales is probably a little bit ahead of the curve as a state in Australia where they've just got a new organisation that's been formed and it was as the usual with governance, it was a, another organisation that was renamed and its remit was expanded after those bushfires you mentioned, Resilience New South Wales, which is probably leading the way in thinking of an emergency management type agency within government parallel to the fire, ambulance and policing type agencies. The other states, we're considerably smaller than New South Wales as far as population, not necessarily size. Um, so we're probably going to be some time behind, not necessarily because of desire, but because of the purely pragmatic issues of cost-benefit resources. The, the other question I had is you made reference to an article you wrote, um, and I know the, through this article is how we got in touch with each other and through TEAMS, the International Emergency Management Society, and Herald and um, yeah. I, um, Dr. B. Carey, uh, who I've also been on the show, and uh, I've read your article. So could you tell us about this article that you wrote? Because it had to do with, uh, you know, certifications uh, of what you kind of touched on already. Yep. So in Australia, we have the Australian Journal of Emergency Management. It's an open source publication that is able to be searched. Uh, you can throw the link for the article or the uh, journal itself onto your uh, website without an issue. Everyone can get to it. As part of my studies doing my professional doctorate looking at building a new emergency manager within Australia and how we do it, I've been looking at all the different parts that actually make them up. What is it that makes an emergency manager? Is it somebody that starts as a police officer or starts as an, a defence person or somebody that starts as a garbo? If that's what we need as the start, what do we then give them to build them into this role? And it was through that research where the issue of certification came up. Um, I teased that out into an article for this um, at the same time as identifying the work with teams and starting to look at that um, test candidature that I'm doing at the moment on that, having already done the IAEM, CEM candidature, so having an understanding of both systems. Um, because my personal belief is that it should become a profession, whether or not it does in my career lifetime, I'm not too sure, but we'll give it a go anyway. 
and see how it develops and how we set those um, standards for those that come after. Funny enough, that learning and lessons thing that I spoke about before. Well, it's interesting that um, uh, you're a part. Well, actually, let me just ask, how did you get involved with the team's uh, certification part? I'll just jump straight. So teams as one of the certifications, I've seen teams around in the past. We've had some involvement of teams in Australia. It's not an organisation that is um, largely uh, embedded within Australia. Um, so I'd seen some, I heard Harold at a uh, conference, what they call an AFAC, Australasian Fire Authorities Conference in Australia, and um, decided to see what it was and build on it, purely because, as I said, from my point of view, I'm looking personally at the professionalisation of what I do and also the broader industry at which I work. So saw it, identified that it was an option and then um, included it as part of my research for the article slash membership of starting to establish a new chapter of teams locally. And for those that don't know, Harold, um, who you mentioned is Harold Drager, the president of the International Emergency Management Society. Yep, and has been for a number of years from what I understand. Yeah, uh, actually, yeah I've been with them for 10, 11 years and he's been the president the entire time. And he's actually one of the co-founders as well. So, you know, he's uh, definitely got his fingers in that organization. So with regards to certifications in Australia, what are some of the key recognized ones? Now, knowing that Teams is still, um, you know, starting off your test candidate, and I know they've got diff uh, uh, different um, aims. Uh, they want to be a global certification. But what other ones are recognized in Australia? So the issue we have in Australia is that none of the ones that I wrote about are necessarily recognised. And again, it's that pathway to professionalism. Um, so there is a advocacy membership body for all of the fire service type agencies in Australia called AFAC, the Australasian Fire Authorities Council. And they've been working on a, an emergency management professionalisation scheme. And as part of that, they're looking to accredit people up to a standard to allow those people to move between jurisdictions. The AIMS, uh, the AFAC accreditation program is called EMPS, the Emergency Management Professionalisation Scheme. Everything's got to have an acronym. Yeah. But they're looking at accrediting at this point level three incident controllers for their member agencies. So in Australia, level one is what happens when one appliance, one car, one truck rocks up to a job. Level two is when you bring in a slightly higher level supervisor. Level three is it's getting hard, it's getting complicated. You're bringing in specialist people to lead. But they're all very much in the response function. So the AFAC EMPS process is in the pro in still, I think it's only four or five years in, and they're trying very hard to identify the level three incident controllers and a couple of the key functional leads within an incident management team and get a depth of um, penetration across the Australian emergency management community or in particular the response community to accredit people at those levels. So everything they do in that uh, program meets the normal definition of a certification scheme, but their certification is in a response, um, I wouldn't say silo, a response focus in a small number of member agencies. My agency, as a policing agency, is not a member of the Fire and Emergency Services Council because we separate constitutionally police and emergency services in this country under the way our constitution and law is set up. So we're not a member of that. So I'm not actually able as a member of my organisation to go and undertake that process. I can but do e it. But even though you probably meet a lot of those qualifications. Yes, but I don't know that I'd ever actually meet necessarily a level three incident controller. Hmm. The work that I control based on my normal role within the organisation may get me a level two. I haven't necessarily been exposed to the level three really complicated response incidents from my organisation that's done with people further up the food chain. However, if we were to put an emergency management column next to that, 
I would probably be a level four emergency manager because I manage the state's emergency coordination centre, what's sitting above the incident management team. So I have that bigger picture. So the AFAC EMPS scheme is pretty well the only one really across Australia that is understood across a large number of people. There are three others that have started operation in Australia in greater or lesser formats, the IAEM Certified Emergency Manager, but there's only 12 in Australia or 13, I think. (laughs) The um, EMAP program, which comes out of the United States, but that's about accrediting programs, not individuals. And I think there's a couple of programs in this country that have undertaken EMAP accreditation and teams which has three of its test candidates from Australia. One, as you've identified, um, Dr. Desiree B. Carey, who's completed her um, test candidature for teams, and then two others of us that are going through the process of testing the process, validating the process, and will hopefully be accredited over coming weeks or months. Weeks, hopefully, for me. I'm not too sure where the other person is up to at the moment. Probably the same spot uh, you are, you know, uh, just one more step to go. <laughs> and I got my fingers crossed for you. <laughs> We've come to the end of our second segment. We're talking about emergency management and certification in Australia with Russell Dippy. We'll be right back. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Tune in each week for the Labenthal Report with hosts Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman. The Labenthal Report keeps you in tune with market conditions, investment opportunities, and outlooks based on the stories and headlines to keep you in touch with your financial success. Are you picking the right financial path? Find out by listening to The Labenthal Report live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back. We are talking today with Russell Dippy from Australia about emergency management and certification in the land of Oz, uh, one of my favorite places. Um, Russell, you were talking about certification. Um, I'm kind of curious, are there pros and cons to certification, you know, and what does certification really signify? So at the moment, if we were looking in the Australian context, Most people, if I were to say I have a certification in emergency management, would look at me blankly because they look more at the uniform that I wear and the markings on that uniform from my home organisation, not necessarily what does it mean in that bigger picture of emergency management. So as somebody that's trying to establish certification for emergency managers, establish the fact that in Australia emergency management should really be a profession. It's about very much getting the language into normal use, getting people to understand what certification means and what goes into making a certification. So a certification is not something you get out of your cereal packet. It's something that you've got to go through a process that has a level of rigour and you should be undertaking that level of rigour with the level of 
pride and thought and learning that goes with it. There is actually an international standard on certification organisations. Um, from what I've seen at the moment, nobody is directly applying that standard, but the certifications that we have spoken of um, are pretty well aligned to the standard, even though nobody's gone down and tried to get a tick like they've got an ISO 9001 or a 3001 certification on their program. So it's going to be very much a long and um, arduous task, I suppose, in some regards to get that into the understanding so it's not just somebody that's been around for ages or somebody with lots of shiny stuff on their shoulders that's really good at it. There's actually a process, a set of learning, a set of experience, a set of understanding that's been independently tested and verified and reviewed by a set of uh, peers to say that you do meet that minimum standard that the certification says that you meet. So in Australia, we often share resources across states. At the moment, the resource sharing is quite easy within the fire services because there is some commonality of understanding and label. But until recently, we didn't have commonality, for example, of hose connections. We've at least fixed that now so fire trucks can work across borders. Now let's do the same thing with the people. We've got a certification or some way of labelling the fire chief, the incident controller, now what we're looking at is how do we actually start to label and share the resources out of that finite pool of people. They're going to take on some of those other roles. The people are going to do the sorts of roles that I do, like managing a state-level centre or a state-level response that is there to support the incident controller in doing their job and delivering their service to the community that they're there for. So it's going to be a process of time. It's going to be a process of getting the understanding of what certification means in an emergency management context. As I said earlier, Australia has just finished um, the professionalisation process of paramedics across the country, so people understand now in most cases. How long did that take, roughly? Um, from some of my... Um, um, friends and um, workmates that were working in that there, I think that was probably a good 10 years' worth of work. So paramedics used to be trained through vocational training or on-the-job training. They then went through a process of moving that training to university-based training, so a three- or four-year degree. That went for a number of rotations of staff, and then they started to say, well, hang on a sec, a nurse is recognised as a profession who did a three-year uni course. I've done a three-year university course. Why aren't I recognised? What's the difference? And then um, forming appropriate representative bodies like a nurse's federation. They did the same with a paramedics federation in this country. And then going down the path of convincing the politicians at state and national level that it was worthwhile because they looked at it and said, this is just the way the paramedics wanting extra money. Not actually the fact recognising what they were doing and the increased service delivery they were giving to their patients. You know, what they're doing is saving lives. You know, well, really. if, that, if that's not, you know, a, a, a fantastic requirement, qualification, I don't know what is. You know, I is, agree that with the same, is that the same challenges that emergency management then has to go through? You know, do I think they're going to have to go down that same path. Hopefully we'll be able to learn from what our paramedic friends have done over the years and maybe shorten the process a little bit. Um, we don't have the same numbers of paramedics so it may actually be a little bit harder than what our paramedic friends went through because across the country there's a lot more of them, a lot more agitation, a lot more political um, pull that you can get from those numbers. So we're going to have to balance that as we move forward. But the first step I think is very much going to be people like myself that are in the industry that are doing the work to actually start to walk the walk, walk the talk, in fact, and actually get some extra qualifications, get some certifications and actually show what it is that these things mean and how they deliver service to our communities. Do you have to go through uh, situations where you show, I guess, politicians, you know, um, and they're always the bad guys, <laughs> um, show politicians, you know, without an emergency manager 
this is what you may have experienced. Do you, do you kind of have to go through, um, I don't want to say using scare tactics, but do you have to kind of point that out? Um, we always have to make sure that politicians are aware of where they fit into the bigger picture. So there is a role for elected officials. There is a role for the people within government and those roles should be clearly understood on both sides. When you get the crossover, it's a bit like the changes in arrangements that I spoke about before. You get the confusion, you get the duplication, you get the miscommunication. So it's about sharing the understanding and in some ways managing up. That might be another Australian term for you, but actually working oh, I, out... I actually know what you mean. <laughs> how you can actually support those people that are in the political spaces to do what they do. So in Australia, we have a fairly good separation of the public service from the political masters. We don't have the same level of political appointments in the operational space as what some countries seem to have. So we are lucky in some of that respect. And we have to work to maintain that level of appropriate separation, but appropriate frank and fearless advice for those that are in the um, political levels of government across the country. Yeah, here in Canada, we're the same. We, Australia and Canada, I know, are very similar in how they're structured uh, government-wise. It's our neighbours to the same south. Same sort of foundations. Yeah, uh, our neighbours to the south have the uh, all those appointments. Yeah. You know, and yeah, we won't talk about them. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> um. So we only have a few minutes left. Do you want to take two minutes to uh, talk about uh, two or three minutes? Any last words on emergency management or certification or, um, you know, the, the profession in general? So I think just in summary, those of us who are in the field and are normally in the field because of a level of passion and uh, desire to continue in that broader spectrum all need to actually be part of the solution as far as moving emergency management into a profession. And part of the solution is considering those options for certification. It is considering those options for how we professionally develop ourselves and also how we sell the role that we have taken on and the level of service. So people would know that we provide a good service. We would pride ourselves on providing good service, but We've got to manage up. We've got to manage out. We've got to actually sell the service, sell what we're doing, try and learn from what we've done and what our friends in other uh, parallel agencies have done over the years and identify those lessons and get that through. So in my case, I've spent a, a number of years trying to get the role understood across my organisation. My aim is that when I uh, leave the organisation, it will know what it is that it needs to try and do to keep the role going and hopefully somebody will be able to come in and won't be starting at ground zero. I'll train some people and have some in the wings that can do that. I think emergency managed, managers generally need to start thinking about who is the next generation, how are they going to develop them, what are they going to do to actually contribute and continue in some regards, I suppose, their legacy might not be the right word, but you understand the concept of actually building upon what we've done to make it better in the future. And that's what we're all here for. Well, I'm going to take some of my time here to ask uh, one more question. How do people get, uh, if someone wants to get into emergency management, where should they start? What should they do? What should they you know, focus on? So in Australia, unfortunately, the only way to do it tends to be coming through a uniform emergency service and become a manager of emergencies first and then move across. In other countries, there are ways of going direct. It's very much about trying to work out what your end goal is and actually having a plan. Everything else comes back to having a plan. Prior planning prevents poor performance, depending on which version of that acronym you may or may not add another P in there. But it's actually working out where you want to go and looking at what your jurisdiction, your area has to actually do it. Volunteering is good. But volunteering is one part. Certification is a part. Training and education is a part. Actually getting that experience by moving around, volunteering, doing other jobs, etc., are all parts. I don't know that there is one tick in one box that says, 
hi, Billy, you are now moved from high school student to emergency manager. Mm. Emergency manager is that broad understanding that needs to know a little bit about a lot of things. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming, uh, hopefully correctly, that there are some kind of uh, uh, groups people could uh, look at and join as well. Yeah. Yep. So in Australia, we have uh, a couple of groups. So there's Australian Fire and Emergency Services Council, very much for the fire agency staff. But again, that's aimed um, very much at organisations. There's the Australian Institute of Emergency Services, not as big as it could be. There's the International Association of Emergency Managers that operates across um, large parts of the world. There is TEAMS, the International Emergency Management Society. Um, there's a number of groups that uh, exist on LinkedIn and Facebook, etc., that start to actually get that around. So it's a matter of actually being a very good networker and learning what's around and joining and speaking to people and having that ability to go and have a chat. Well, and on that note, we've come to the end of our show. Russell, thanks very much for talking about emergency management and certification uh, down in Australia. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. And uh, all the best on your upcoming exam for the TQC certification with Teams. I know you'll do well. You know, uh, okay. it goes without saying. So There's I'll, a lot of reading involved for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, apparently. So, so I've heard. And I'm with Teams. So, yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> so all the best with that. And thank you for sharing your knowledge and uh, time with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. And to everybody watching and listening, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.